You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Sarah, and happy New Year's Eve today. Um, Just like we've done with the past couple of holidays, we do have a New Year's Eve, New Year's Day case for you today. Um, However, unlike some of the past holiday episodes, today is just an unsolved case. Um, This is a case that the further I dug into it, the more I really wanted to just kind of leave this as its own episode. So I didn't want to throw anything else on it. Um, This episode will probably be a little bit shorter than we're used to. But like I said, I really just wanted to make sure that this entire episode was only devoted to Helen Popa, um, who you guys will get to hear a little bit about here in just a little bit. Um, It does seem like law enforcement is getting closer and closer to possibly cracking this case. If they can just get a little bit more information and get the right information. So please listen closely to this. And if you do have any tips, I will be giving that contact information at the end of the episode, like we always do. And um, please, if you do know anything, make sure that you reach out to law enforcement. So before we dive into the actual case, I want to talk a little bit about Elena Popa, and she went by the name Helen, um, and I apologize if I am not pronouncing Elena correctly. It is spelled with an E, um, but everywhere just referenced her as Helen, so that's how we'll reference her throughout the episode today. Um In an article that came from the Daily News out of Huntington, PA, Helen's granddaughter, Lisa, was recounting Helen's story. And she remembers her as a woman who was always full of energy, always kept herself busy with gardening and crafting. She would craft rugs. We'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later on. Um, She was always cooking and canning and all of that kind of stuff. She sounds like she'd be my best friend, honestly. I had that same thought as I was writing this up. Like, I was like, huh, this sounds like me. <laughs> Literally all of the things that Chelsea does. <laughs> Gardening, <laughs> crafting, canning. Yeah. Um, so she was quoted, Lisa was quoted as saying, my grandmother always seemed to me to be a very cheerful and upbeat person, always humming and singing something. And she never stopped working from the moment she got up until she went to bed. So um, it also kind of reminds me of my grandmother, which almost made it harder to research and write this up. Well, um, I can imagine. Yeah, but Helen was born May 20th, 1906 as Elena Cuckoo. And I, again, apologize if I am mispronouncing that. She was born in Romania. Um, and again, everything I found that was referencing her later on was just using the last name Popa. So I heard that pronunciation, but not her maiden name. Um, her parents immigrated to the United States when Helen was very young. And then when Helen was 14, she moved with her parents to Mount Union, PA. So a little bit of a clarifying statement here, because I had to read the notes a couple times. Um, those first 14 years, she didn't live with her parents. Oh, where'd she live? 
so she was still in Romania. Oh. And her parents came to the United States. I see. Okay. Um, I'm assuming just because this was the case with a lot of immigrant families that um, she was probably left with family in Romania and they came to the States to try to secure a living situation, work, um, those sorts of things. So, um, you know, that would happen frequently with parents that were coming from, especially those um, Eastern European countries. And then I guess one day, according to Lisa, uh, this granddaughter, a man showed up at Helen's house and just said, hey, I'm your father and we're living in the States and we're established and you're coming with me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's a little strange. So I, I think that's a cool kind of story um again i couldn't find specific details but i'm assuming it is something along those lines of the family was going to try to get established and then came back and got the kids well landon's one-on-one uh she's from another country very close to romania and she doesn't really talk about it very much, but it just reminds me for, we obviously got her stuff since the holiday just passed mm -hmm. and she tried to make him cookies. So she's from Albania, which is not that far. I think it's like a country or two over. And she made him these cookies from her country and <laughs> this kid eats everything. She was like, he wouldn't even eat my cookies because it's so different. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it was like an orange cinnamon type of cookie. <laughs> But yeah, Ooh. she, I've always wanted to ask how she came here or like yeah. why she came here. But every time we like hint at it, she does not want to talk about it. So yeah, yeah, totally get that. And I think a lot of that region when families are leaving and coming to the United States, it's because they're trying to escape something or get out of bad situations or, you know, things along those lines. So yeah. I could totally understand, you know, her not wanting to talk about it. But yeah, it seems like Helen's father just kind of went to the door and said, hey, I know you don't remember me because you were teeny tiny when I left to go to the States, but I'm your father and now you're going to the States with me. And um she went through immigration in Ellis Island and then they settled in Mount Union, PA, like I said before. Okay. Um, she didn't speak any English at that time. And uh, Lisa made a comment that for really most of her grandmother's life, she would kind of write half in English and half in Romanian, which I mean, I can get that, especially if your whole family is also speaking Romanian and yeah. If you really only have to learn it to get through certain things, then you're just going to learn that little bit of English you need and then stick with what you know. Well, I've heard between like different languages, some languages just don't have words that other languages have or they're like similar, but don't mean the same thing. So I know that it probably is hard. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think that's common in I think German has a lot of phrases that like to to take one German word and translate it to English. It might be like a 10 word phrase or something, but it's one word in German. Uh -huh. So that's a really good point, too. I didn't even 
me, the language person, didn't even think about the language piece. <laughs> the only reason I thought about that is because a girl that I played rugby with, her parents were from France. They're working here, but they spoke over six different languages. And I swear oh when gosh. they would talk, they would go back and forth between all these languages. And they were like, there's just not a word specific to tell you what I want to tell you. And I was like, well, yeah. I don't speak any of it. So I don't know anything you're saying. So <laughs> whatever. Yeah, that's that's a good point, though. That's interesting. Um, so then as Helen continued growing up through her later teen years in Pennsylvania, she did meet and eventually married George Popa, who was also a native of Romania. So again, he was also from there. He likely spoke Romanian as well. So, you know, it's not like she even really needed the English to communicate with her husband. So um, I don't know too much of his backstory, just that he is from Romania. I was just wondering if maybe they, like, I know some places have, like, a certain community of set people from different places, you know? Maybe they found a place like that where she... Maybe. Yeah. 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 That would make a lot of sense also. Um, now, unfortunately, her husband did die young on May 20th, 1937, which was actually Helen's 31st birthday. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I know. That is right? terrible. Whenever I was researching it, I was like, May 20th. No, no. And then I looked back at the dates and I was like, well, that's horrible. It is. Um, now, he was 43, so he was a bit older than her. But still, that, I mean, even at that time, 43 was fairly young. Yeah. Um, his death was attributed to a bunch of different medical conditions that all originated from his service during World War One. Um, he left her with three children, the youngest of which was five months old and the oldest of which was 11 years old. Oh, that's terrible. Um, so she had to immediately go to work full time at a sewing factory nearby. And then um, she also then sold the homemade crafted rugs that I had mentioned earlier on the side just to bring in a little bit of extra money pretty much anywhere that she could. And um, Lisa made a comment that, you know, her grandmother would do anything that she needed to do in order to provide for her kids and to make sure that her kids had the life that they should have. I love that. Me too. She and should I... be my best friend. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally get it. Um, and I think we see a, a lot of similarities in that today too. We see so many, whether it be single moms or widows or um, even just, you know, parents that have two parents in the household that are working multiple jobs and doing things on the side just to kind of try to make ends meet. Um, it's a crazy world we live in and it, oh, it is. hasn't changed too much apparently. So, um, <laughs> Now, Lisa, that I keep talking about, her father was the baby of the family. So he was five months old when his dad died. Um, but he and his mother, Helen, had a very close bond. Um, they spoke regularly on the phone. They would see each other pretty much as often as they could. Uh, they had weekly phone calls set up. And then, you know, sometimes you, if you have something different to call about, you know, you call 
off of the schedule, but they always had their scheduled calls. Um, and Lisa and her grandmother had just spoken on Christmas day that week before she died. Um, and Lisa specifically recalls memories of helping her grandmother make a nut-filled sweet bread called kalaches, and I am probably mispronouncing that. Um, I looked it up, and it pronounced it the way I just said it, but that feels very English and not Romanian. So I don't know if that's how you say it, but it's a nut-filled sweet bread. Um, they would actually make the dough themselves and they would use nuts from the trees in Helen's yard. And Lisa said they would crack them open and grind them by hand when they worked to make the treat. And um, like I said earlier, so many pieces of this story remind me of my own grandmother, not just in gardening and baking and cooking and, um, you know, doing everything that you can for your kids. My grandmother was also a seamstress and she still does sewing. and. My grandmother was also an immigrant who came to uh, the States in her teens. So there's just a lot of things that line up, which, again, just kind of makes the rest of it even harder to write up in the story. Um, I can imagine. But it sounds like now she was 73 when she died, but it sounds like in those 73 years, um, there was a lot of love and a lot of joy, um, you know, in her house, in her heart, in her life. So um, now that we all, you know, feel really happy about her life, let's, um, you know, break that mood down by talking about the cold case piece. So Helen's body was actually found by her son-in-law, William Bard, on January 1st, 1980, in the afternoon. Um, I saw a couple different times reported, but somewhere between 4.30 and 4.45 p.m. on January 1st. She was found at the back of her house uh, near the cellar steps, and she was actually concealed under various materials. There was some wood, there were Venetian blinds, and there was a corrugated roofing material all kind of piled up on top of her. Um, and it took me a couple of articles to realize that um, she was actually found outside. So for some reason in my mind, I was thinking she was like on a back porch of her house or close to the back door, but she was actually outside, which is then why these different construction materials were on top of her, concealing her. Um, now, when her son, Timothy, first got to the house, first got the phone call like, hey, you need to come to your mom's house, he was told that she had been beaten up but was under the impression that under the impression that she was still alive. However, once he got to her and like actually got back to the crime scene, he realized it was a crime scene and that she actually had been murdered. Um, and it was immediately clear to the coroner, Dr. Harry Negley Jr., that this was a homicide because of the injuries that they could see just from the start. Um, it wasn't, you know, oh, she slipped and fell and hit her head on something and just kind of passed out. Um, it was clear to them that there was there was malintent behind what had happened. She 
she died of a combination of multiple injuries. And the first thing that they really noticed was a, a huge laceration on her head. Um, but then we'll get into a little bit what they actually found during the autopsy that, um, again, just kind of proved the theory that this was definitely a homicide and not just an accident. Um, Lead investigator Curtis Everhart said it was unclear whether she was murdered in the area where her body was found or whether the crime occurred in a different place in the house and her body was just placed at the rear afterwards. Um, now, there was an interview that was aired on one of the local news stations um, I think it was in 2015, and I'm mad at myself now for not writing that down, but the link to the video is in our sources if you guys want to watch the actual, um, it's just like a three-minute news clip, but one of the investigators was talking and said that there's actually evidence to support uh, the idea that she was assaulted inside and outside of the house, but again, that was coming from evidence that had been collected and re-examined, you know, over 30 years later. Um, but initially when Everhart was in charge, you know, in 1980, um, they couldn't determine exactly where it happened, um, which then just kind of lined up with what they found out 35 years later, um, that it all just kind of matched up. At that point, there were really no theories. They didn't find any weapons that would match the uh, injuries that she had uh, when they did a preliminary investigation of the house. And I couldn't find anything even later on specific to a weapon, um, but we'll, we'll dive a little bit deeper into the injuries and autopsy report. It additionally was noted that there were no signs of forced entry. So investigators believe that either the door was like open or unlocked and people just kind of got in or that the assailant or assailants had knocked on the door and that she had opened up the door and then they just kind of, you know, came in and beat her or, you know, whatever their, their plan was. Well, like, I feel like back then locking your door wasn't as commonplace as it would be like today. That was like kind of in the era where like people got way more cautious, like at once the 90s hit like the um, locking your doors, just like yeah. being more, I guess, trusting. I mean, I think that started to decline in the 80s, right? Like, so at this time. Oh, yeah. So and this, that's when like 70s and 80s was the a huge uptick in like serial killers yeah yeah it was all around that time we lived when i was younger we lived in like i don't want to say like the middle of nowhere but it was definitely way more woodsy where i am here never lock the door never shut the windows and even i don't know i just yeah. back then i wouldn't i wouldn't think it so much as she would know somebody it would just be that it wasn't a concern. Oh, yeah. And I mean, even now, you know, like if my husband and I go somewhere and someone has to come and, you know, take care of the dog or something, you know, like we don't even like having to leave a key anywhere around the house. Like if we can't get a key to a person, we don't even want to go anywhere because we don't want to just leave a key anywhere. But I mean, even growing up in the 90s, 
I remember the house I lived in for most of my childhood. We would lock the doors, but there was always one window that we would leave unlocked and we would leave like the screen on it and everything. But, you know, if we forgot to take our house key to school or whatever, and we got off the bus and it was like, oh, crap, I don't have a key and no one's home. Um, we would always have that window unlocked, but you had to like pop the screen out and then push uh. the window up. So we did that, but we wouldn't leave the actual doors unlocked. Um, and, you know, that was, I was in middle school in the mid aughts. So I know I'm the young one here, but, <laughs> um, that was, that was something that I remember, like my parents always saying, you know, we're not leaving a key outside because anybody could see you like pick up the key and then know where it is and get in the house. And like, you know, whereas 15 years before that, people were just leaving their houses unlocked because it wasn't unsafe at that time. Yeah. So yeah, the, um, the granddaughter in the same interview that I have linked in our sources said that after this happened, her father went to her other grandmother's house and put new locks on like all the doors and the windows and made sure that, you know, something like this couldn't happen again. So it, I think it was definitely just you left doors unlocked because it was the seventies and the eighties and yeah, we, we didn't live in the fear that we live in now um, that people are going to get in. So like I said, they did of course complete an autopsy. So after the autopsy was completed, Dr. Negley, who is the coroner that I mentioned earlier was able to confirm that Helen did die from blunt force trauma from multiple blows to the face and head. Um, And I think, think they were actually referred to as severe blows to the face and head. Um, and it was so bad that it caused her skull to fracture and she had severe brain injury from it. Um, and that almost makes you think that it's personal for that much force. Right. And, like disfiguration of the face. And then, and then almost she had materials on top of her. So it's like you're hiding the body after the fact. Makes yeah. it, so that does kind of make me feel like it was someone that knew her it's it's definitely sketchy and it gets a little bit sketchier so um it was clear to investigators at the time that it had happened as part of a robbery and they actually went through and there were a lot of items missing from the house like money jewelry those sorts of things um but at this point, they really had no leads on who had done it. Um, she did have what was called a coal wood fired furnace. Um, and that phrasing was used in multiple articles. So I don't know if that means it could use coal or wood. Hmm. But it's called a coal wood fired furnace. Um, I've never heard of one of those. Yeah, I never have either. Um But she had one that she would tend to in her basement and investigators believe that she was on her way down to the basement when she was attacked somewhere between 9 p.m. and midnight 
that New Year's Eve. Um, so it may have even just kind of been crime of opportunity of, you know, how are we going to get into someone's house? Oh, well, look, she's walking outside to get down to her cellar. You know, let's take advantage of this. Even if she did have her doors locked, um, you know, if she was walking out of the door to go to the cellar door, um, she would have had the house door unlocked. So um, that kind of plays in a little bit to what they are thinking may have happened. Now, on January 8th of 1980, it was reported that there were no new leads in the case, but the rumor mill was running crazy through town. And I feel um, like that's always the worst because it gets people yeah. caught up on the wrong things, wrong people, and can never oh, yeah. really, like, find where the source came from. But they have to check everything out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it... It seems like now I couldn't find because obviously newspapers didn't report rumor mills. Um, so I couldn't find any of the information that was kind of swirling around the community. But there were comments that um, it was just like totally off the wall. Couldn't be traced like you were saying, like there's not a source to go back to. It's just people making up theories and then like kind of trying to roll with them. So it was reported at this point. So we're a week, a little bit over a week after the murder, state troopers were joining in on the investigation as the local police were continuing to interview anybody and everybody that they could um, just in attempts to uncover as much evidence as possible. Their real goal in those first couple weeks was just to get any piece of evidence that they could get every piece of information just to try to pull together anything that they could, um, especially considering, you know, it was 1980. They didn't have the technologies that we have now, um, you know, the ways that we're starting to catch criminals from the 80s because of what we have now obviously didn't exist yeah. in that time. Um, and I actually found a clipping from a newspaper report um, where the reporter was writing about a community forum and there was a citizen who was really upset about police expenditures in early January of 1980. And when they pulled up the expenses, it was all of the overtime pay for the officers that were investigating this particular murder. And at that point, the citizen just kind of accepted that answer. But, you know, looking at the reports and saying, okay, there's a lot of money going out to police in this small period of time. What up with that? I just, yeah. I thought that was interesting that that came up at a community meeting. I just don't think people really understand how much time resources, efforts, um, like continued supports from other agencies that it takes to solve cases. And unfortunately, like, it's not like these percentages of cases are going down, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's just like, police just get such a bad rep from like mainstream stuff. I feel like yes. unless it's pushing an agenda, people don't get to hear like the good stories or yeah. all that. And like, not to be like, pushing the police or whatever i know everyone has totally different views and political views whatever have you but on my rugby team 
there's so many women on our rugby team that are actually police officers. It like it started with one and then there's just so many. I'm like, is this like a <laughs> movement? What happened? But um they're some of the greatest people ever and they put in so much extra time just like yeah. as I'm sure you know, you're a teacher, you put in so much time even when you're not working. It's like your life. Right. And so it's just so much time and energy. Oh and, yeah. Yeah. And you figure you can't get through an entire neighborhood of interviews in three hours. Oh yeah. Like if you're interviewing every single person in the neighborhood in order to try to get any sort of information or details that you don't already have, it's not just a quick like knock, knock, knock. Hey, you think of anything else? Like, no, you have to have conversations and you have to learn those discussion techniques to try to help somebody remember not to feed them information but you know there's certain ways that you can discourse with someone oh, yeah. that will help bring about memories or more bits of memories um and like i said you can't do all of that in a day i mean it takes a lot of time and think about how many quote unquote tips rumors what right. have you we're going around at this time. They have to check them. It's just yeah, time consuming. Oh, yeah. And I mean, you may end up back at the same person's house five or six times if, you know, this rumor mill leads here and this rumor mill leads here, then I might need to go to that person and see where that originates and circle back to them or whatever. So and um, the craziest thing for me is like listening to so many different like true crime podcasts, watching all the crazy true crime stuff. Um, sometimes it just takes a certain individual that has like a different mindset or a different like s- skill set. I one crime that had been unsolved for like 30 years. It wasn't even a police officer that looked at it. Apparently it was this. I'm pretty sure he wasn't supposed to. But police officer's friend that showed the crime scene to this guy that was special needs and like anything out of the ordinary like he could catch and it was like it it was like a restaurant murder and there was like a piece of foam and they couldn't find out where it was from and this guy looked at the picture once and figured it out where oh over gosh. 30 years no one else could figure it out from one piece of foam and i mean sometimes wow. it just takes like a trained eye or yeah just someone new looking at it so it could be multiple people looking at a case before something comes about. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more too. Cause like I said, it, it was kind of quiet for a while. And then around 2015, things kind of started to spark back up. Um, the family definitely feels that way with this case, that there was one particular investigator that really kind of lit a fire on the process and, really got a lot of things moving and we'll talk about her in just a little bit. Um, now back into 1980, obviously we're talking about this case, so they haven't found the killer. Um, but when months and months had gone by without any new information coming, the family offered up a $10,000 reward and it was featured on the front page of the local paper and that came out in May. So she was killed in December, January, you know, right at New Year's. And then they offered this reward starting in May. 
And it was emphasized repeatedly in the article that if any information was given to family, that it would be held in extreme confidence. And obviously that the reward would only be given if the information actually led to some sort of resolution or arrest. Um, and then as I kept flipping through newspapers.com, I found an article that referenced a composite sketch created based on witness testimony. Um, and then they were using that composite sketch to spark conversation with interviews in attempts to try to figure out who did this. So again, these same neighbors that police may have already gone to two or three times they're going to again now with this sketch so you know back to it takes a long time and a lot of talking yeah. um you know so they did take this composite sketch around um at one point there were some people of interest but it really didn't amount to anything super compelling because obviously no one has been arrested so there were some some people that they wanted to talk to, whether they were suspected of it or just police thought they would have more information. Um, but it it seems that none of that ever really panned out. And then, you know, I couldn't find the actual sketch. I didn't even see it referenced again in any other articles. So um, I'm just kind of assuming that nothing really came too much from it. And then... From there, I really couldn't find much of anything after 1980 until, like I said, we got into 2015. So in an article from 2015, we're introduced to Trooper Gretchen Swank, and she is the one that really kind of got the case moving forward. And, you know, the family has said so many times they are so thankful for her taking over the case so now was this because like this specific police station created like a a cold case unit or was she just looking at things was it remaining because i know some places if it's like cold case enough they kind of put it to the side where people aren't like continue continuously looking at it yeah so they were pooling three specific cases as part of a cold case unit and this was one of the okay. cases that they pulled yeah and i totally forgot to write that down so i'm glad you asked well i'm guessing they do that because i guess if they still have i guess like specimens to be able to get tested when it wasn't able to be tested before i'm guessing right. that's when they pull cases the ones yeah. that are most likely to be able to solve yeah and i mean we look at how many cases even in the past five years have been solved from genealogical yeah. DNA um, and just the newer areas of forensics that are able to better analyze some of the pieces of evidence. So, but yeah, this was part of a cold case unit that was being formed and they pulled three cases from PA to look at. Um, and I 100% saved that article so we can pull the other two names out as well for future episodes because they are still not solved either uh. um now she did say sorry this is again trooper gretchen swank now she's from the hollidaysburg pennsylvania state police barracks and um she said many family members were concerned because there was a significant payment recently given to helen um didn't 
And is there, there's no, no reason why there was like a random payment. It's just, I couldn't find details. I'm assuming that it's one of those cases where it's withheld because if somebody happens Uh, to know more details, it's semi-incriminating. True. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure because it it's not like it would be life insurance from her husband because he had died so many decades prior. Um, you know, so I'm not a hundred percent sure what it was. Um, I couldn't find amount or who it came from or anything like that, but just that it was a significant payment that she recently received. And I think it was like really recently received. So I don't know if it was a Christmas gift or what Um, well you want to know something i feel like when it comes to money the people that shouldn't know like know if that makes sense like when i had first moved in with my grandparents they did night at the races at their i don't really know what it is i think it's like a bidding thing it's something about horses i assume i don't know (laughs) i'm not i don't gamble or whatever but they either i know nothing yeah i know what it's called that's basically it. But anyway, it was like a lot of money and like, it's to raise money for veterans and some other like local things. And mm-hmm. obviously it's at night and can't like deposit that much money at the bank. Uh, I think banks right. only take a hundred bills at a time and so much money per night. Yada, yada. I don't know. I'd have to ask my son's father about that, but they put the money in their house in their safe and the house got broken into the following day. And it's like, how did they even find out? How did they know? It's like the people that need money just just know. It's like a sixth sense or something. Yeah. Like, how do you just know that this is there? Yeah. Yeah. And it's that's crazy. And the thing is, like, you could tell someone that you think you could trust. But if they're like in need or going through a hard time, you could be an easy target. I don't know. That's why we literally just went to a light show, as I'm sure you saw. Mm -hmm. And my... My son was like asking my nephew, hey, do you have any money? He's like, oh, yeah, I have this much money. I was like, yes. And you're about to not have this much money because someone's going to rob us. I was like, don't yeah. say that. Don't shout these things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, they had this this payment of whatever it was for whatever it was for um, that had recently come into Helen. Um, they do think that that was a major factor and then, like I said before, there were also various belongings, including jewelry that they found was missing from the house. So robbery is definitely kind of the top uh, motive here. Well, I wonder if they tried to recover any of the jewelry at like local pawn shops and stuff like that, because if it was someone who needed money, I mean, obviously they want to be keeping the jewelry. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't see anything on that. Um that would be a good question, and I'll get into this in a little bit, but her granddaughter, Lisa, same granddaughter, actually has a Facebook page set up, oh. and I was chatting back and forth with her a little bit as I was writing up the case, um, but that would be a really good question for me to ask her, and then um, you know, I can kind of talk that through with her, and we can do an update at some point, um, but that, that would be a good question um it wasn't reported on so i'm assuming no or if they did find anything it didn't lead to anything either it didn't lead to anything or it did and they're not revealing the information yet yeah um because like back then they didn't have surveillance cameras i'm sure they didn't have a good like receipt uh backtrack follow-up 
it was probably all just pen on paper and all right what's your first name your last name not necessarily needing id not checking that an id would be a real id not like real id like the new thing but, but you know, like an actual yeah. <laughs> identification um so yeah maybe they did look into it and it just didn't produce anything or maybe they didn't but that's an interesting thought i didn't even think of that but that's a good point if you're going for money um so then Trooper Swank also noted that various pieces of evidence were resubmitted to testing facilities in Harrisburg. Um, and she had specifically mentioned identifying DNA. So they must have something that was fingerprint or um, some sort of DNA that they were able to rule out as not being Helen's. Um, but then was resent to Harrisburg, and I couldn't find anything on follow-up from that. However, depending on when it was sent, there's a backlog of everything, especially in Harrisburg, um, because that's where everything gets sent for testing. So um, it's possible that it just didn't get tested yet or that they were not able to find any conclusive results. Um, I couldn't find anything when I was looking for follow-up from that. Now, after three years of working the case and taking the case from what they considered to be cold to being extremely viable, um, Trooper Swank was actually transferred to a new position. She kind of took on more responsibility. Um, I believe it was a promotion, but not like a linear promotion, not like she became her supervisor's position or anything. It was a different position, but um, she did move on from this case, unfortunately, and it was handed over to Jeffrey Hahn in 2016. And then as of November of 2017, Trooper James L. Miller was also added to the case because of his background in forensics and just to get another set of new eyes on the case. So the family definitely feels that uh, Trooper Swank really did the most. Um, you know, she was only in there for three years and she found all of this information, was sending things off. Um, she was studying like aerial photographs of the house just to see different layouts and see different um, possible routes of getting there and leaving and where they could have run, how they would have had to get out, and kind of using that to pull some theories together. Um, so the family is so glad that they had her, but also, you know, heartbroken that she had to move on. Happy for her that she was moving into a better position, yeah. um, but definitely, you know, sad for their own case that um, she had to move on. Um. Now, police do believe that they have a good idea of some players who were involved, but of course, they're not publicly naming anybody, um, and they don't have quite enough information, quite enough details to pull together yet in order to make any sort of arrests or um, place any charges on anyone for it. Um, now, in that same interview that I've mentioned a couple times, uh, Lisa did tell the reporter that she's really hopeful that someone will admit something soon, saying, you know, we're 42 years out from this murder, all but, you know, when this episode comes out, we'll be 
exactly 42 years out from the murder. And she's really hoping that somebody will come forward with information that is kind of almost eating away at them on the inside. And she's urging anyone who knows anything to just let it go, share the information, get it out because it's probably destroying you on the inside. If you know anything and you know, you'd be able to bring closure to that family. Um, there is, like I mentioned earlier, a Facebook page. It's called Cold Case hyphen Helen Popa. Um, and it is also linked in our sources because I pulled some information from there. But you can look it up and like the page. Um, there are some updates posted as they become available. Unfortunately, since the last update of Trooper Miller being added to the case, really nothing new has come out. So there's not a whole lot to be added. But she is still active on there. Like I said, I was chatting back and forth with her. Um, so it's still active. There just hasn't been a whole lot on there to really report anything new. Well, I've heard that for like cold cases, they take the back burner. So like testing and stuff. Oh, yeah. If there are new cases, they totally take priority. So it could take years just for one or two samples just because of the backlog, the shortages, especially during yeah. COVID. Oh, I mean, yeah. it could take forever and it's sad, but yeah, that's the reality of the system, the way it is right now, mm -hmm. just exactly. There's not enough people, not enough resources to, to push those. Um, now people have been commenting on the page about, you know, trying to get it onto cold justice or different unsolved TV shows. Um, but Lisa actually commented, responded to one of the posts with a comment and said, quote, I have tried, but without the police cooperation, they cannot work on the case. For some reason unknown to me, state police who are, quote, handling my grandmother's case have shut down help from a prestigious group of retired police and my suggestions of cold justice and 48 hours unsolved, unquote. So again, you can kind of hear a little bit of her emotions coming through there and her feelings toward the officers in charge. Um, but those are her opinions and she's entitled to them. But that is a direct quote from her on that Facebook page regarding getting it onto a TV show or anything. Well, it's just so frustrating because I mean, after all this time, come on, if my, my biggest, like one of my biggest saying is if you are trying the same thing over and over again and getting the same result, do something else. Like yeah. it could reach tons more people. It could really produce things. As I said before, one of my cases was on unsolved mysteries and just getting statistics from them. They were able to like reopen a case and like there, I mean, obviously it's taking a while because they have to do testing, but the amount of tips that came in compared to yeah. not being on the show, it was exponential. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, um, you definitely see that a lot. And I think something like that would be really good. Um, when I was going back and forth with Lisa, you know, I was letting her know, Hey, I'm writing this up for our podcast. You know, we're not huge, but we found it and we are, you know, reporting on it and hoping that maybe someone will hear something. Um, and you know, if we can at least be a, a small part of someone else hearing it and, 
hopefully get it to climb a ladder and get somewhere else other than, you know, local TV or, you know, two Pennsylvania girls recording in their houses. (laughs) Well, I find the hardest thing for me is like, we definitely get criticized. I mean, as you know, there's some people that get upset. We can't pronounce things that we don't have all the information or we might say the wrong thing because it's like telling, going around the room and telling the person in front of you something, you can start with something by the end, you're getting something completely different. Oh, yes. That's how reporting works. And we're trying our best. We don't get paid. And there are some families that are so appreciative. Yeah. And then there's other families that, and I mean, we can't confirm it, but we'll get comments and it, you can just tell that it's someone close to the case yeah. just because how upset they are and they have no one to turn their anger to or yeah. frustration. And it's just like, if we could just help and get it to someone that might know something, because we do have a lot of people in PA that listen, because I'm that crazy person that posts in all those PA <laughs> Facebook groups. Um, but like there have been people that had said, we got someone who emailed us and said, no one's really ever done this case. And I'm just so thankful. And there wasn't a lot of information. I, it was one of my cases. I almost didn't do it, but just for that person to reach out, it means the world to us. Yeah. And kind of adding on there, if, I mean, obviously you guys already know, if you have a case, you can bring it to us. Um, we get a lot of emails and comments on Facebook and, and that sort of stuff and keep that coming. But, you know, kind of while we're talking about that frustration that comes up, if we cover something and you guys hear something that sounds wrong or, um, you know, that there's more information that we didn't get to just email us and say, Hey, can, can I give you this information or, you know, we can set up a zoom or a phone call. You know, we're, we're here with, with the goal of getting information out and we want to make sure that it's as close to perfect as it can be. So if you can help us in that, um, we, we definitely, we would rather get an email with that than, like a review or an anonymous comment because we can't correct a review, but we can correct it. If, if we hear directly from you, Um, and honestly, one of us will do it. Like we're all busy, but we'll, we'll all be like, who has less responsibility this week? Who can take (laughs) this? Please help. Like, like as Sarah knows on the Facebook things, there's so many people that have reached out on my posts, like do, do this family's case and they'll give me all this information. And sometimes I feel like we forget about them, but it takes a lot of work and to be able to do a case that we have to communicate, it takes a while. And I don't think they understand. So we will always find somebody to work with you and like, it'll happen. Yeah. So that was our little tangent here. Um, sorry, but sorry, we mean sorry. every word of it. No, no, no. We we mean every word of it. Um, now, continuing on 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 this Facebook page um, for Helen's page, there are some some other interesting details that I found on the page, um, and I saw a nugget of information. Here's just another complete quote. I just copied and pasted the comment here. Um, where they wrote, yes, there is something inside about my grandmother's case. I've also heard that a drug dealer was given immunity for past crimes if he dropped names of higher up the food chain. He was somehow involved in her death and his statements could not be used in a court of law. 
Um, so that was another comment that I saw there. Um, now, of course, you know, she's not outing the person. She's not, you know, blasting their name and information all over the Internet. But um, it it seems like. And even the way that the investigators talk about it. And again, watch that Vimeo clip um, that's in the sources, because it's very interesting to watch the body language and facial expressions as they talk. But the mention of, well, you know, we have people in mind and it's always plural people, but, you know, we're not sure what other players were involved. And it definitely sounds like somebody either needed drug money or was involved with something that they needed quick cash for um, and that multiple people were involved with this. So um, there's there's definitely details and facts from the case that I could see supporting this statement from the Facebook page. So again, nothing from that comment is officially confirmed but yeah, I can totally see that being a possibility. Um, and then, like I mentioned earlier, there haven't been any other updates posted, but um, it is still an active page. So you can definitely still go like the page. And, you know, if you know anything, you can communicate with them. Um, otherwise, if you have any other information, you can call the Pennsylvania State Police at 814-627-3161 and ask for Trooper Miller. A $10,000 reward is still available if your tip leads to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons who killed Helen Popa. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Sarah. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.